Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome, everybody. This is Kyle Clarich coming to you from Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, the Tartan of Cardiology. And we are here today to talk about echo in the OR with Hector Michelina. Hector is a professor of medicine in Rochester, a great colleague of mine who is the research director for the Division of Structural Heart Disease and Cardiovascular Ultrasound. He also directs the intraoperative echocardiography group, and that is his expertise that we are relying on today. So Hector, welcome. Thank you for being a member of our department or division and, and now talking to us about the intricacies of intraoperative echo. Yes, thank you very much, Kyle. A pleasure to be here. So maybe we should just start with sort of a basic question. What is intraoperative echo? I would, I would first define what perioperative echo is before going into intraoperative echo. And, and it is an, an entire process of uh, guarding the patient and guaranteeing a good success for the patient from beginning to end. And this is, this is a process that is based on the knowledge of anatomy, the knowledge of mechanisms of dysfunction, particularly for structural heart disease, and critical effective communication between the echocardiographer and the surgeon. So perioperative echo is just the echo that happens around surgery, and it has three parts. The first part is the preoperative imaging which is usually carried on by transthoracic echo, but in some cases, transesophageal. And the goal of the preoperative, which is not in the OR, is to define the problem and the operability. For example, nowadays, I think that an echocardiographer should be able to determine whether a mitral valve is repairable or not. Uh, looking at the transthoracic echo, if it's of good quality, and also uh, that also goes for uh, potentially the aortic valve and the tricuspid valve. However, those may need sometimes TEE evaluation prior to going to the OR. The second part of perioperative echo is the intraoperative imaging itself, which is carried out by transesophageal echo, so intraop TEE, and has two parts, which is a pre-bypass Okay, which is when you go into the operating room, when you take images of the patient, when the patient is already under anesthesia and the surgeon has not started the operation. During this pre-bypass, the key three aspects are to confirm the diagnosis, refine the diagnosis, particularly for a, a difficult structural heart disease aspects like a, a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and valvular repairs, and search for new things that may have not been found in the preoperative TTE. The intraop imaging also has a post-bypass moment, which is when the surgeon finishes the operation and the patient just comes out, comes off cardiopulmonary bypass. And it is critical for the physician to be there quickly, for the echocardiologist to be there quickly. And it is the most important, this post-bypass juncture, because there's real-time clinical decision-making 
that can guarantee that the result of the surgery is the desired one. And finally, the third part of perioperative echo is the pre-discharge TTE. So when somebody had surgery and is in the hospital, they and they are going to be discharged, they should get a pre-discharge TTE, which is what we call their new fingerprint or new baseline transthoracic echo after an operation that has uh, caused changes in the heart. Very good. So one of the things that our audience might be interested in is you're searching for it during the pre-bypass TEE while the patient's under anesthesia, you're searching for confirmation, refining, and then maybe some other things that haven't been found. What are those other things that you might run into? Yeah, so, so, so the most common things that are found are uh, PFOs, patent foramen ovale, uh, unsuspected uh, valvular disease, like unsuspected mitral or aortic regurgitation. Aortic atheroma is critical, particularly in the ascending aorta. So looking at the ascending aorta for aortic atheroma is critical because you have to remember that the surgeon will likely cannulate the ascending aorta and will also cross clamp the ascending aorta. And therefore, it is very important for the surgeon to know the amount of calcium and its location and its severity. Thankfully, however, a significant calcification of the aorta is not common. And the other thing I do want to mention is that echocardiography is in situations of porcelain aorta, like people that are post-radiation disease and develop a complete eggshell a, a calcification of, of the entire uh, circumference of the aorta, echocardiography is not the best uh, one to identify that. In fact, x-ray-based imaging is the best. So I would recommend that preoperatively a, a, a good look at the chest x-ray and a good look at the coronary angiogram because you can identify porcelain aorta that way. The ideal diagnosis, diagnostic tool for porcelain aorta is computed tomography, of course. Other things that you may find in this pre-bypass is uh, um, you, you may find more complex complications of endocarditis. This is the part where you refine, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, you can also find uh, inadvertent thrombus, thrombus in the lateral appendage or elsewhere. And you can also find other tumors, for example, papillary fibroblastomas. Those are all important things to look for. So the pre-bypass in the OR, intra-op TEE has to be comprehensive, okay? It has to corroborate the valvular dysfunction or whatever the indication is, refine the mechanisms, communicate to the surgeon all these things, assess a baseline right and left ventricular function so that you can compare it to the post-bypass. This is a critical thing. You have to assess the severity of aortic regurgitation for cardioplegia planning. Because if there is more than mild or moderate aortic regurgitation, it is very important for the surgeon to know because they may need to use a different route for cardioplegia, for giving cardioplegia through, through the coronary arteries, or if there's significant aortic regurgitation, it can be given through the coronary sinus. So that's a very comprehensive uh, review of all the things that we search for in the OR. Yes. And uh, whenever I'm down there, I know that the surgeons say, oh, no, she's going to find a papillary fibroblastoma again. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great uh, overview. Thank you for that very comprehensive summary on, on the, on the pre-op, the intra-op, 
which we do both pre-bypass and post-bypass, and then the pre-dismissal fingerprint yeah. echo. What evidence, though, does support the use of intraoperative TE? I think I know based on what you just told us what you're going to say, but I, I'd like to just define it again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think from an academic perspective, it is important to know um, that uh, there are no randomized outcomes uh, data that supports the use of intraoperative TE. However, the combination of an excellent safety record with less than 0.1% mortality and less than 0.2% morbidity with TEE, together with the prospect of effectively treating post-cardiopulmonary bypass residual abnormalities before the patient leaves the OR, permits you know, some form of inference of improved patient outcomes from non-randomized test accuracy studies, which is what has been done all along, such that the impact of intraoptic is measured by the amount of non-planned surgical modifications elicited. And we did a systematic review of this in 2010. It's published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2010. I'm the first author and uh, Maurice Serrano is the last author, where we took all the studies addressing intraoptic in in adult surgery, okay? And this is, it's important to know that we did not include a, a congenital surgery or adult congenital surgery. And what we found was very interesting after our pooled analysis, we found that most of the post-cardiopulmonary bypass changes occurred in patients that were being operated for valvular heart disease, up to 4%, uh, particularly patients that had undergone repair, mitral repair, aortic repair, but also in patients' uh, status post-aortic valve replacement. About 2% of changes for general uh, intra-op TEE, and only 0.8% for cabbage. And I must say something about cabbage. There is a recent paper in JAK, uh, I believe from the STS database, a, a large number of patients uh, showing, I believe for, for the first time, that patients at high risk benefit mortality-wise from the use of intra-op TEE. Uh, again, this is not uh, uh, a causality uh, interpretation. It's an association with better outcome when you use intra-op TEE in patients at high risk with that are undergoing cabbage. Okay, so high-risk patients, how would you define those? Yeah, so it's interesting. That article defines the patients as, um, as, a, as a high uh, preoperative uh, score, you know, like the usual scores. STS, sir. Yeah, STS score, Euro score, and, 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 and so on and so forth. The way we do it here at Mayo is, uh, generally speaking, most surgeons will want a pre-cardiopulmonary bypass intra-op TEE to look for potential abnormalities that were overlooked by transthoracic echo. That's number one. However, if the patient has a normal left ventricular function eh, and no significant other findings, it happens that sometimes when they finish their coronary bypass surgery, if everything's looking good, they will not require a postcardiopulmonary bypass uh, TEE. However, patients that do have severe left ventricular dysfunction or multiple regional wall motion abnormalities or uh, that are accompanied by some degree of ischemic mitral regurgitation and so on and so forth, do need to have a both pre-cardiopulmonary um, bypass and post-cardiopulmonary bypass evaluations. Perfect. That's very helpful. Thank you for that clarification again. I think during valvular surgery, 
there are some critical or crucial, I'd say, junctures when we are doing the intraoperative TEE. And, you know, where are those junctures and what principles do you kind of keep in front of your head? Yeah, so, yeah. so 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 this is the most important question of the interview, I think, because the the, the most important uh, time or juncture is at the post cardiopulmonary bypass moment, because at that moment there needs to be timely presence of the echocardiographer in the operating room to assist the surgeon in daring procedures to get the air out of the heart. And this can turn into complicated things where you have to go back to bypass because there was some air that went through the right coronary and so on and so forth. And this is a combination discussion and clinical action, immediate clinical action uh, between the echocardiographer, anesthesia, and the, and, the, and the surgeon. Next thing is to reassess the left and right ventricular function and compare to pre. And when you do um, um, valve surgery, it is very important to do an anatomic and hemodynamic evaluation of the valvular result. And this is key. This evaluation of the valvular procedure result needs to be done under appropriate hemodynamic conditions of heart rate, blood pressure, and intracardiac volume. And I will give you an example. When we do the post-bypass evaluations in patients who have undergone mitral valve repair, we want that patient to be completely off cardiopulmonary bypass, number one. Number two, with the appropriate amount of intracardiac volume. Number three, with appropriate blood pressure. You should not evaluate a result of a mitral repair, for example, with a blood pressure of 80 over 50 and say that it looks really good. In that case, you should ask the, the anesthesiologist to increase the blood pressure to a physiologic blood pressure, 120 over 80 or a little higher, and then you do your evaluation. The same goes for aortic valve repair, which is gaining popularity and, is, and has been systematized and is undergoing more evaluation and promotion nowadays. The other part is that there needs to be effective communication of the residual severity of valvular dysfunction to the surgeon in terms of anatomy and mechanism. And that, of course, we cannot discuss here because that takes an entire, you know, a, 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 a year to learn or so. And of course, you have to rule out ascending aorta hematoma or dissection after decannulation. Because there was a cannula in the aorta, it is very important when that cannula comes out that we rule out the presence of hematoma or dissection. This is not a common thing. It's about 1% or less. But when it happens to a patient and you're able to save the patient's life, then it is very uh, uh, rewarding. Now, a couple of other things about valvular disease surgery is the severity of the lesions, say the severity of MR or AR, should be determined pre-op. The intra-op TEE is not to determine severity and indication for surgery. The indication for surgery exists already. That's why the patient is in the OR. What you do on the pre-bypass is to refine the mechanism in aortic mitral and tricuspid regurgitation, especially for repair purposes. Refine the anatomy of damage, of the damage that exists, and then again, evaluate under appropriate conditions. And I'll just give you an example. For example, in mitral valve degenerative disease, when patients come with you know, prolapse, flails, Barlow's disease, it is very important that the 
echocardiologist evaluates the abundance and mobility of leaflet tissue that evaluates the presence of mitral annular calcification, okay, that prioritizes the scallops. So we know that the mitral is divided into scallops, A1, 2, and 3, and P1, 2, and 3, to prioritize which of those is the culprit or which couple of those are the culprits, identify clefts, identify commissural jets, and these are things that are readily discoverable when one uses intra-op 3D TEE, in, particularly, in particular for the mitral valve. So intra-op 3D TEE is very important. And that's just an example. Another example is because we use robotic surgery for mitral repair, for example. You are tasked as an echocardiologist uh, with uh, um, confirming position of atrial cannulas and ensuring that, that there's appropriate coronary flow during cardioplegia. And then of course, at the end, you need to have a prompt answer on residual severity, location, and mechanism if there needs to be a, you know, go back to, to re-repair anything under pro appropriate hemodynamic conditions. And let me just say this final thing. It is your job as an echocardiographer in the OR to guarantee the best result possible and the best re result possible, both for aortic and mitral valve repair is mild or less regurgitation under appropriate physiologic conditions. Yeah, so you would accept mild, but nothing more. No, no, you should not accept because it is proven both for mitral and, and uh, aortic uh, regurgitation that these are markers of recurrence. Yeah. And recurrence, particularly in mitral regurgitation where it has been studied, is associated with bad prognosis. Just one point of clarification, you mentioned clefts. And you know, when a lot of our audience may hear clefts, they might think about congenital mitral valve clefts. But I think we see, and we talk about this a lot in our mitral valve repair circles, that there are other types of cleft-like indentations, and those are equally, well, equally important, I think, when we're repairing for the surgeons to know that. Yes, and, and that is a very good point. Thank you, Thank you for, for, for clarifying that, because you know the, the real meaning and the, and the original definition of a cleft is really a congenital cleft. Of the, of the anterior mitral leaflet associated with uh, other congenital uh, heart diseases. But as you very well said, what we're referring to here is, is cleft-like indentations. These are very profound indentations uh, uh, between the scallops or in the middle of a scallop, uh, maybe quite large and may go all the way back to the annulus. They're more common in the posterior leaflet. And sometimes they are associated with the regurgitation and the surgeon needs to be aware because the surgeon may have to placate or close those clefts mm -hmm. uh, uh, to get uh, to get the 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 best result. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. And and then the one last question about the ascending aorta and the post cannula evaluation of the ascending aorta. You mentioned two things. Of course, one very you know very rare, thankfully, but can you know can be devastating is dissection. But you also mentioned hematoma of the ascending aorta, which is not so rare. And do you want to just clarify how you tell the difference between those two entities and 
would you do anything about a hematoma when you see it? Yeah, you know, that's that's a complex question. <laughs> so thank you very much. And, and uh, you know, uh, you know, an acute large intramural hematoma is considered in the ascending portion is, 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 is considered as severe as a type A, a dissection. And, and, you know, if it's large and, and if it's significant, I mean, I think it would it most in most cases require um, going back to bypass and uh, replacing the ascending aorta. However, we have seen other smaller, I remember a case where there was a small um, residual, like a tiny intimal flap in the arch uh, at the end of a ascending a hemi arch repair. Mm -hmm. And it was so tiny and so small, and it was kind of in the distal arch that we decided to, to, to leave it alone. And, and, and this was in consultation with the, with the treating surgeon, mm -hmm. plus another um, uh, aorta surgeon specialist. And the patient also had a CTA in the, in the next couple of days to kind of look at it again. And it was a very minor uh, abnormality and it was decided to be left alone. And I, I think, you know, the other thing that we see a lot with aortic valve replacement is some hematoma around the valve where we placed it. And sometimes that can extend up to the root a little bit. And those tend to go away over time. That can happen, but if you speak to the surgeons that do aorta surgery, particularly the ones that do reimplantation procedures like the David procedure, mm -hmm. they will explain to you and they will tell you that that posterior uh, hematoma that we call is not so much a hematoma, but new thickening because of, because, you know, they have to do a very deep dissection right. around the root to be able to place the Dacron graft at the very, very base uh, of the ventricular aortic junction. And sometimes that generates that look. So sometimes it's not a hematoma. It's not really a hematoma, yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, I this has been really informative and, and I know that many of our audience may want to hear more about this kind of thing. Is there anything that you can, like resources that you could suggest to the audience if they wish to have more didactic interaction or uh, references or something along those lines to learn about intraoperative. Yes, yes, absolutely. There is a slide with with a few references. Uh, uh, the first one is uh, perhaps uh, there's there's a live reference which is uh, uh, an, uh, an about a fifty minute talk for the Echo Board Review that I gave this year on on intraop TEE. It's on the Mayo uh, Board Review. Um, the second one, as you can see, is uh, the Mayo Clinic Proceedings 2010 Systematic uh, Review on Intraop TEE. And also in the ECHO Manual, in the uh, JO ECHO Manual, there is a chapter uh, on Intraop TEE uh, authored by me and the surgeon. And there is a recent state of the art review in the Journal of the American Society of Echocardiography. Uh, the first author is Dr. Thaden, and I'm the last author. It's from uh, 2020 in June, and that is almost like a chapter. It's got uh, you know many many pictures, many many videos, and finally, in the European Society of Cardiology textbook of cardiovascular imaging, we had the opportunity, Dr. Uh, Joseph Malouf and I, to write the intraoperative um, echocardiography for valvular surgery chapter. So that is there as well. There's a lot to see. Lots of opportunities yep. to learn more about a very fascinating topic and a, I think a very fun place to practice a lot of collaboration between the surgical team and the echocardiographic team. So this, is, uh, this has been a great discussion and 
Hector, I want to thank you very much for your time and your enthusiasm and explaining all the details to us. And uh, with that, we'll sign off of this podcast. Thank you for joining us for interviews with the experts. It's my pleasure, Kyle. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.